You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always, and welcome to this episode where the median house price is breaking new records. The amount of property on the market is as low as it's ever been per capita. The amount of property being purchased is consistently higher than the mining boom. And we are sitting down with Stuart Reside, General Manager of Urban Quarter, one of the large land developers in Western Australia, to talk about how we solve that housing supply problem, what the business is up to, and the ways that the government could assist in making land developers' jobs easier in solving this problem because that is the way things work essentially the government sets the rules and us in industry do our jobs which most of us are very passionate about in delivering those outcomes still reside thank you very much for coming in thanks trent thanks very much for having me it's exciting to be here and well done on your podcasts i've listened to a few of your episodes recently and i must say you do a really good job excited to be here today thanks Stuart. the first thing i want to do is talk quickly about yourself you're the gm of a large land developer some people might not have heard the company but they certainly would have heard of the projects that you guys undertake and we'll go through them shortly but to get to the top of the pile in a company like this i'm sure it didn't just happen overnight can you give us a couple minutes spiel was where it started at i'm assuming university and the steps it took to become general manager of a large land development company yeah i've been in the industry for about 20 years came into it a little bit late had a sporting life before that which sent me on a different path and away from a career i suppose and so it was probably in my mid-20s that i really got serious about the land development industry starting with stockland for about four or five years great company to work for very much enjoyed my time there what did you do well i was in the acquisition team there originally so basically assessing new sites we acquired land down in baldivis expansion of settlers hills we acquired land up in the northern suburbs as well during my time there. Also, I spent a bit of time over on the East Coast as well for Stockland, which was good. That was about early 2000s. And what was life like trying to acquire land back before land was on the internet? How did it work? You went down and had a cup of tea with landowners and got to know the local landowners in the area. Were there um, many shotguns out at the front gate? Uh, yeah, they still are. Still the challenge of actually breaking the ice with land owners and trying to find common ground around, you know, buying the land and and them selling the land and not ripping them off or, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to fleece them for their asset that they've had for a long time. And obviously we're not interested in doing that, but it's about trust. It's about building trust. And so getting face-to-face with people is, in an acquisition sense, is where that starts. So I spent time in in that space, lots of research, understanding the market, understanding costs. When I look back, you didn't have the experience to draw on. So really just using your commercial nows from university, understanding financials, cash flows, or that sort of thing to run the numbers, but kind of running numbers over processes and a future project that you don't know a lot about, you know? So mm. there was a bit of that, but it was a great learning ground, don't get me wrong. As um, an analyst level or yeah. entry level, you're obviously relying on the director level to make yeah, a lot of these right. decisions. Right. You're sitting there helping them the information. plug a little bit of that yeah, together correct. and yeah. have the tenacity to maybe knock on doors and things like that. But I guess the deal is made at the director level end of the day, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, great time. So then I went to a multiplex for about five years as well, which was change of scene coming out of the big public uh, listed company of Stockland and into what was still the private organisation multiplex developing the Vale subdivision, the Roberts family farm up next to Ellenbrook. Still a big company. 
Oh, yeah, very much so. It was a huge company, yeah. Uh, and, of course, during my time there, Brookfield acquired or became a partner in Multiplex, so it became a multinational business as well. And we really got exposure to those overseas capital markets and thinking and ways of doing things. I oversaw the development of the Vale subdivision for about four years. Is um, that still going? I remember oh, going I think they've out just to finished it, actually. They're still almost an old, finished it. Uh, sales office yep. right at the front car park of yep. the function center or hotel there right and and it harks back to a day probably 20 years ago when mm. that just opened up you yeah know, you can it, well, it's, probably it's put it like there. a heritage building right <laughs> yeah yeah so no that we had a great time developing that project it was a unique piece of land and working with the city of Swan, you know, some great outcomes there you know, in terms of environmental retention. Uh, the head of its the, time? The lakes, in particular the lakes that were, that were created there, the, you know, where we intercepted groundwater and we were able to actually convey the groundwater and have exposed groundwater in an urban setting. It's hard to do that these days from a water resource perspective. And we were flying. We were generating huge sales, big development program. And I remember starting there, having come out of the acquisition team at Stockland, and then running this project, which was probably doing two to 300 lot sales a year during my time there. And I was in this sales office where we worked up at, up at Vale. We often worked on site, which was unique as well. We didn't, didn't necessarily work in the head office, often worked out on site. Which for everyone listening on the East Coast, we're in the sticks here. We yeah, are, that's back, right. Back up on 20 Nangara years Road. ago, yep. the Vale yep. was in the middle of nowhere. That's right. 20, that's right. 30 minutes from anywhere. Oh, you had to take your life into your own hands driving back home along Nangara Road. No lighting whatsoever. <laughs> Wildlife everywhere, trucks going back and forth 100 mile an hour. And I often remember the drive home from work and it'll often be late because I would have been stuck up in the sales office, not necessarily selling, but just trying to get my head around how these projects work and dealing with the next inquiry from the syndicate owners. And I mean, I had my hands full. I can tell you, I was under the pump big time and I was sinking. Talk about being thrown in deep water. That was that Your was, that 20s, was what happened to me. Yeah, my, my mid, mid 20s, yeah. yeah. But I reflect on that and you know, learn a lot from it and better for it. So... In the end of all of that, we developed Vale for those years. We also brought infrastructure and acquired land down on the Lord Street Precinct in Henleybrook, which has obviously been a huge expansion area in that northeast corridor over the last 10, 15 years. So we really started that area with bringing all of the services down from Nangara Road, down Lord Street, and got that area moving with Whiteman Edge. And then Brookfield Multiplex decided to get out of land development, and they ended up selling the balance of Vale, and they sold the, the remainder of Whiteman Edge to Stockland where I used to work. Yeah. It was at that point in time where I had a bit of a fork in the road moment in my career. And whilst it was tempting to go back to Stockland, where most of our staff went and continued to work, that was a very tempting option. Yeah, it was at that point that I got in touch with a former colleague, Jason Wallace, at, at what was Wallace Property and is now Urban Quarter. And that was about 12 years ago. Since then, yeah, I've been um, at Urban Quarter and growing our stable of projects and in a small business, essentially. Well, it is a small business, but the projects you're doing are fairly notable. And as I said at the start, if people haven't heard of Evan Quarter, they've certainly heard of some of the projects. I'll let you run through them, but I think the first one that piqued my interest when first learning about Urban Quarter was Dunsborough Lakes project. That seems to be a project that has very interesting stories and history and background from its first inception to the tumultuous nature of its first few years and to now obviously what it looks like, some real capitalising from the guys who eventually picked it up at a basement bargain price. 
Dunsborough Lakes is obviously a well-known project. You drive past it on the way into what's probably the most well-known regional town in, in Western Australia, being Dunsborough. So everyone knows the Dunsborough Lakes project and the days of Brendan Julian up on the, the billboards coming into town. He really headed up that from a marketing point of view. But it's obviously been through a few hands over the years. So there's been various commercial results, I suppose, from that piece of land. Definitely examples of people getting starry-eyed and, and missing the numbers on what the land was worth and ultimately... Serious. Was, money's was paid for. for it, mate. Absolutely, yeah, no. So we acquired it off Fassbin about 10 years ago, and it was fair to say that was a bit of a reset in the underlying land value out there. It enabled us to, having completed that transaction, it enabled us to put the land on the market at, a, at an affordable price. To that extent, we were selling 450 square metre blocks down there at around 190-odd thousand at the beginning. And we actually downzoned, if you like, some of the densities that they'd built into the structure plan. So we tried to sort of give a bit more space, not cram in the dwellings as much, try to appeal to that regional market where people are down there for a bit of lifestyle and space as opposed to living in a postage stamp. So we sort of took it in that direction. And the thing that we loved about that project was so much fantastic work had been done on entry, on all of the streetscapes, the lakes out the front, the golf course, and of course the location, five minutes to meet, to meal up beach and, and the Dunsborough Town Centre is right there and the regional open space. And we could see the potential for it as infrastructure improved, transport infrastructure improved, airports infrastructure came on. And of course the COVID story obviously helped, helped it out a lot with regional sort of life changes where people can genuinely work in the regions these days and you know make an income. So it's been a very successful project for us and, and it's sad to say that in our current stable of land, there's only about a 100 blocks left to go. That's an interesting point. You could easily say that the location sells itself, but I'd put it to you that before COVID, which is a reflection of the fact it has changed hands a few times, it is still a very niche market for particular people in a particular stage of their life to go and spend money on what might be a holiday home or a tree change. But when COVID came in, I'm assuming that was an absolute steroid hit for you guys that you'd never expected. Oh, look, it got a bump, no question. And you're right, it is a, a limited market. There's only, top of my head, the numbers in, in Dunsborough's 5,000 people or something like that. It's not a big catchment. You are relying on drawing people from, you know, greater you know, Bunbury, Bustleton, Margaret River in the wider area, and, and you just don't have the numbers of the existing population base to generate a high volume of sales. So we always knew that we were going to be, we'd only, we targeted, you know, maybe 50 to 60 sales per annum for the project. We've probably averaged about 80 over the life of the project. But that's about all Dunsborough can sustain moving forward is around that kind of number. You just don't have the population base to generate the sales moving forward. And I suppose moving forward, we can see that there is future supply coming in the hands of multiple developers. And when that comes out, and there's multiple development fronts around Dunsborough, it'll be much more difficult, much more competitive. Do you and, believe there will be multiple fronts? I, I think there's probably likely to be multiple fronts, yeah, in the next few years. When we think about the possibility of that, the first question I ask is, who's going to do the work? And I remember you telling me offline, there aren't that many people who you can turn to to actually develop land when it comes to the subcontractors in their tractors and bulldozers actually moving this soil around to develop the land in the first place. Yeah, no, that's right. Like the market, which is limited in its numbers, as is the, the contractor base. So there's really only a handful of contractors to negotiate with. But I think it's fairly well appreciated at the contractor level that for the market to work, the investment needs to have a return on that investment. So there's only so much money in the tin. We have to work with what the market can afford. There's got to be a profit for the land developer. We understand there needs to be a profit for the contractor. And so, so long as everyone understands that, 
and think you, you can reach agreement despite the fact that there's only a limited market there. In other words, you can work you can work with them. Now, I know every development has its unique cost structures, right? Some will need a lot of fill, some will need a lot more drainage. And this is where I moved to here is if you had exactly the same project in Dunnisborough Lakes and you put that in Perth City, is it inherently more expensive to develop down in the southwest because there are less contractors to turn to and obviously there's less competition in that space? Are people getting paid more down there to develop? Or is it the other way? Is it, well, actually, mate, it's cheaper down there to develop, which is why these blocks can be cheaper in the first place, if you take away the land cost component. Sure. No, I'd say it's not necessarily cheaper down there to develop, although I would the labour rates may be, may be cheaper because it's generally more affordable to live down there, if, unless you're living in Eagle Bay, of course. But, you know, in the broader markets, it's, it's, a, it's affordable. You can live down in the southwest at the bottom end, four fifty to 500000 for a house and land, up to probably 600,000 thereabouts. So it's relatively affordable. So you can live down there, you don't have to have a huge way. So the labor rates are probably reasonable, but the material is the issue. So where you look forward, our imported fill prices have have really gone through the roof to the point where we're paying around $40 a cubic meter for sand now. What were they 10 years ago? $18 a cubic meter thereabouts down there. And that's really a function of limited supply of that material. Isn't that ironic? Limited sand? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like- well, limited sand within proximity. You know, yeah. it comes down to haulage. It's not all in the royalty. There is obviously sand out there, but it comes down to how much does it cost to get that sand to site. And that's the big factor. How so, many guys are rolling around with trucks big enough to carry it? Exactly. And what's the fleet? What's the volume of the fleet in terms of its ability to move it to site in a time frame that is needed to fill it at a rate that's commensurate with the market? So what we've seen down there is that that supply for good quality sand has really been soaked up. We've seen the outer Bunbury ring road take a lot of sand, a lot of good quality sand for that infrastructure. And that's put a lot of pressure on sand available for our market. Well, that's the theme across the uh, southwest and the city really is uh, the state government sucking up all the resources and labour. For infrastructure projects. Yeah. And and look, I guess that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? So we understand that there's a benefit to that infrastructure, no question about it. To that extent, you know, we'd be compliment, we are complimentary of, of this government for its investment in that future both rail and road and looking at you know things like ports and the future strategy around growing Perth so that's understood but it's just you've just got to do it wisely and I suppose stage it and don't overdo it all at once and I think it's probably if you're going to be critical probably just be critical of the way that probably too much has been pulled on in too short a period of time across the board. Oh that is that sugar hit from COVID all the governments Mm. scared looking to grab as much money as they can and put it into projects keep all all this working which now creates the very ironic issue with the RBA that too much of us are working which doesn't make sense to me I I still can't understand how we'd be looking to reduce employment in the country anyway we'll move forward in uh, a couple other projects I think this is great to be able to use the projects as a way to talk about the issues you've got and realities of land development so I think the best way to do that is just to compare a couple of the next projects if we move north being one you've got in Southern River versus one you've got in the Mandra area do you want to introduce those to the listeners so yeah Urban Quarter we have eight projects across Perth, mostly in that southern and eastern corridors, and we have one up in in Eglinton as well. But the two projects there that you're referring to, in Southern River, we have Bletchley Park, which has been in our stable of projects really is the, from the beginning of, of our business. We really built around the Bletchley Park subdivision in Southern River. How big was that initial landhold? Uh, about 150 hectares. It's in the order of 1,600 lots have come out of that site. And we've got about 300 blocks left to go. So we're a long way through that that subdivision. It's a very successful project. And when I say successful, I'm not necessarily talking about profitability. I'm talking about just demand for it and quality. Just delivering it. Quality, and you drive through it now and 
there's been ongoing investment in just the basics, just, just the streetscapes, the housing and the landscaping and thought into the urban plan and the urban layout. It's half a suburb um, you've created there. You guys yeah. should be really proud of that. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic suburb. We're very proud to drive through it and I've enjoyed being part of that project for the last 10 years and be sad to see it see it end. So Bletchley Park, great project, heavy on imported fill. Why? Uh, at the moment. Well, just it's, it's low-lying. So and, it, and that depends on the area of it and there's been other areas where we haven't needed too much fill in the project but this particular area we are now and this is just to give you some examples that every land site is different and it's important that when we're making decisions around future land identification for zonings that levels you know fill is probably one of the main things that needs to be considered particularly when you start talking about carbon and in those environmental factors do you think it is considered so up to date do you think they think why i think so i I think the government departments understand the the fact that it's undesirable to have to to shift half of the sand around to make a project run so um these used to be low-lying farm swampy farmlands right so what do you expect yeah that's right that's where where we've moved this land is urban from rural to urban and most of this land would have been puddles of water in in Mm. winter Mm. or you're going to have to bring a good meter meter and a half of Mm. clean fill into that area and that costs a lot of money to do that it does and like dunsborough the fill price in perth has gone up significantly as well and look a lot of it is about accommodating the housing types that our market is so wedded to being double brick slab on ground Mm. if we could break away from that and this is a really a call out to our major building partners to say we we need to invest in other foundational materials and products to make our houses more resilient to the impacts of groundwater or clay soils if we could do that then we wouldn't need to bring two to three meters of fill into these areas and the housing product that gets put on them could work with, with the existing ground much more and if we could do that and I think we're going to have to do that, to be quite frankly. NCC is going to push us there anyway for other reasons. As is you know, the environmental you know, life cycle assessments that are coming through and being required to understand your carbon impact. And if you're moving half of Perth around to get your blocks to an A-class site classification to, to avoid a crack in a slab to, so that someone's cornice doesn't crack in the future, that's just not the way to do it moving forward, particularly as we now know all of our cut-to-fill areas, a lot of our cut-to-fill areas are gone, you know, mm-hmm. in the northern suburbs. There's, there's, I mean, there's still a lot in the north, but it's out in the south, there's just, they're just not there. So as a co- contrast, we acquired some land recently down in Mandra, as you referred to, in the, called Tucky Cove, and that's a relatively small project, some 200 blocks, but that site doesn't need fill. Why? Well, it's just at an appropriate level. It's sandy, it's got a clearance to groundwater, and naturally suited to being developed for residential housing. And that's what it comes down to. So, and in that instance where we might go at Bletchley Park, we might spend 2 to $3 million on a stage to bring fill in at the moment, on this particular project, we spend maybe two hundred to three hundred thousand in just basically shifting it around and getting the levels right. So, and that's the difference. And I'm talking the same amount of lots being created around forty lots. You know, so one might be a hundred grand a block in in earthworks, and the other one might be five. And then you start to, as a consumer, your eyes start to open really there, and you recognise why it's eight hundred dollars a square meter to buy a piece of land in Southern River, and you go, well, a lot of that is just moving sand around so that you can put a concrete slab on it. Yeah, it's a big cost impact, definitely. When you think about it, 15 years ago, that would have been less than $500 a square metre, I would have thought. Yeah, I suppose so. And there's obviously going to be natural growth in the market. But at the end of the day, as a front-end supplier of a product, which is the land development market, you need to pass on these costs. You can't do it for a loss. That's right. Otherwise, the capital won't come in the first place. Hmm. Unless the, you, you can attract the capital, the actual development won't occur. And that's somewhere I'd like to keep moving in the conversation of people recognising 
over time is that yes whilst we see prices go up over we have seen price go up for, in perpetuity in western australia i would posit that a large material percentage of the increase in the cost of land and the increase in the cost of housing has not come simply from more demand versus supply so much of it a material percentage of the increase in cost of housing land and housing is from increased input costs into the same product i've said this a few times on this podcast my first house four by two i built with home buyer center in 2009 turnkey 150 grand that house would at least be 350 possibly 400 grand now and that is a reality that we all need to recognize is that whilst house prices have gone up materially over the last couple of years a lot of it's actually just simply because the replacement cost of the next supply of housing has gone up not 100 percent because demand is greater than supply i agree there's no question that there is policy decisions made which are not necessarily they're certainly not saving money they're adding cost to the supply of land unfortunately i think we've seen probably a few recent examples where that's the case there's new issues every day it feels like and i think there's always the best intentions around these policies but there's also a cost impact now the question is is the consumer happy to meet that cost at the end of the day do they have a choice no i don't think they do and i'm not sure they're in consulted in the process so there's not there's not a value proposition given to the consumer which says this is going to cost this much this policy we think it's a good idea for these reasons do you agree are you prepared to pay for it because at the end of the day that's what the market will do it'll pass that cost on it just has to one blanket policy across all industry the boats float with the tide it all goes up and all gets passed on and that's a function of just simply investment always it needs to be at the forefront of the mind that at the end of the day the consumer will pay for these decisions and so that needs to be front and center so if there's not a concern around affordability and if there's not a concern around supply then maybe you shouldn't be too worried the consumer can afford it but if there is a concern around affordability and supply then it needs to be front and center in the minds of those decisions and that's the irony of it Whilst affordability might not be the largest pressure in Western Australia, especially when you relate that to the rest of the country, supply is mm. is a critical issue that we haven't seen to this magnitude in Western Australia in my lifetime. That's where it becomes so crucial that these policies are sensitive to whether it's affecting yeah. the ability for you as a land developer to deliver your supply. We saw real solutions focus collaboration between government and private industry during COVID yes. where the shackles were really taken off and we, we were actually approached by local government and brought in to say, what's your program? How can we help? And that was really refreshing. I think that we need to quantify the supply that needs to be delivered and in what time frame and, in, and where. And then I think that those targets need to be set firmly in front of local governments to say, you, you guys need to create these many dwellings in this amount of time. Off you go and get it, get it sorted out with your main stakeholders. And then we might see a situation where both parties are coming to the table with a bit more incentive to make sure that supply is coming out in a timely fashion, in an affordable fashion. Mm. So you're talking about local governments being penalised if they don't not necessarily facilitate penal- not supply? Not necessarily penalised, and I, I, don't, I don't want it to be seen as, as that, but just setting clear targets. Well, they've already been given clear targets and it's clear that many local governments have shirked their responsibilities in that space, both urban and suburban. They look at these targets as more of a guideline of, hey, see what you can do. And that's the frustrating point where looking at it from both a developer and just a citizen point of view, there are many local governments that are lifting their weight and there are many others who absolutely have zero regard. One thing I think doesn't get spoken about enough is the bushfire assessment situation in West Australia right now. One thing I'm identifying and I want to keep making a bit of noise about this, 
is what seems to be a very punitive, extremely risk-averse model that doesn't hold any real recognition for pragmatic thought, holistic development at all. An example of that is, let's say, in Henley Brook right now, where the developers in that suburb, and most of them are essentially Mervac, Cedar Woods, and Home Group, right? They've got most of that suburb tied up. They're buying up two hectare blocks of land, which is the existing initial block sizes, and uh, amalgamating those into the estates they're creating, right? But they're developing essentially one block at a time. But the issue with that is, let's say the guy next door hasn't sold to them yet, and he's got a couple of trees on his site that amount to what might be a risky level of bushfire assessment, maybe a Bell 29 or a flame zone, which I know is a bit of jargon for everyone listening. But let's just say it's an area where you can't build a house against. What it does is it necessitates that developer who's developing that block that they've got to essentially create setbacks from that neighbor for the immediate land. time. And yeah. what it does, it sterilizes land. And yeah. what, what do we do when land's sterilized? Well, we just go, we'll just put a road there instead, we may as well. What I'm noticing is a theme happening there where far more land than necessary is being set aside or essentially created into ring roads loop roads if you notice there's a lot of ways and loop roads these days are being created rather than things like cul-de-sacs and i think a big reason for that is one the way our livable neighborhoods guidelines are set up that every single house has plenty of different ways to get out of their, their street but two the way that bushfire assessment is made that can't have you know cul-de-sacs these days anywhere near trees because of some nominal risk that fire is going to jump three or four houses by the time it gets to a one-way cul-de-sac or that a house can't back onto a guy's property that's got a couple of trees and some grass because this year he won't sell to us but in three years he probably will and that will be developed into new land with no bell rating anyway mm. so what do we do we put a road there and that road doesn't need to be there so one thing that i think is coming as a consequence in a long-winded statement from me of all this very risk-averse bell assessments is we're actually developing less land per hectare to live on than we used to because it's being chewed up by unnecessary road to be used as setbacks from trees that are going to unfortunately get knocked down and replanted somewhere else in a very short amount of time mm. do you recognize that yeah i suppose in those fragmented and globo land settings which we don't actually have many projects in that space at the moment we're fortunate to have some fairly reasonable size land projects where we control the edges to our existing stages and we can manage that bowel impact or the fire loading mm. but yeah lucky I can see, for you <laughs> yeah lucky for us at the moment but that being said we still need to manage it and we still need to clear and deconstrain those houses because otherwise you end up burdening a house with cost to deal with a short-term issue that's not there in the long term you know and that person has to spend another five to ten thousand dollars on various you know fittings in their house which yeah. actually do imp does improve the quality of the home but then it comes down to can the person afford it well yeah just you because know, you could so, mean you should we don't we yeah, shouldn't right. have to be forcing the it's, gold it's plating that, of people's yeah, housing yeah, if yeah, it's not necessary yeah, yeah. no that's right and, and that's a classic example of there's risks and rewards for everything in in life right and the same goes for fire management and i think yes there's risk but what is the risk of a bushfire cutting through new suburb in you know Alcamos, for example I haven't seen it in my lifetime. Um, perhaps I'm wrong. I'm happy to be corrected. But, but we see the risk is low. And so Very therefore low. that setting needs to be applied to the lens when making those decisions. That's and right. So people aren't paying these costs for things that they don't they don't really need. Or in the case of your description there in fragmented and global land holdings, you're not building roads up against 
another person's property to create yourself a, a, a buffer so you can get your bell rating down to an acceptable level. Perfect example, we're looking at a property in Craigie. Someone came to me recently and said, hey, look, I'd like to buy this block of land. I can put two houses on the back of it. It was a triple X block in Craigie. And that block backs onto a small park. That's a bit of a sand dune uh, mm. up in there in Craigie. People in Craigie will know the area I'm talking about. Because of the bushfire risk attained to that little park there with the trees, it essentially precluded any houses being built because it was deemed to be in a flame zone mm. in the backyard of that person's property. So even though that property was zoned for two extra houses for a triplex to be put on that block, nothing can be built there because of the deemed flame zone risk. And I would suggest whilst any tree has some level of fire risk, we are either going to have trees and live with them and take the risk, especially in urban areas. And not to mention that 100 years people have lived in the hills and taken that risk and accepted that risk. But especially when you're thinking about suburban areas in the city of Joondalup, for example, or Cambridge, you go, well, what real, real bushfire risk is there in Floriot backing onto a yeah. park? Well, it's a shame because it means that often those areas where people want to live most, which yeah. is next to you know nice trees or parks, are difficult or more expensive live next to or impossible or, or, or impossible or you know not not allowed so just needs to be a risk assessment that needs to be done there's um, another policy if, that has if, a heavy if hand. Bells wasn't, wasn't there i guess it just wasn't even there yep. five years ago there's been a lot of houses developed where that policy wasn't there and i think they've they've all been fine so yeah i think it's probably a bit of overreach and i think it's probably in res, in response to insurance in the background conversations with insurers around risk because i think that drives a lot of these things i mean that that drove a lot of your know, drainage you know insurance is behind a lot of this you know drainage coastal setback safety for garage locations on corner lots it's a shame that some of these decisions get made because of that factor. Yeah. Well, I'd posit that more houses have burned down from stoves being left on yeah. than from trees being burnt next yeah. to them, to be frank, That's especially right. in Marangaroo or Morley or Coburn Central. These areas, it's just laughable that, uh, for example, there's a flame zone if you're anywhere near the freeway because the freeway has trees abutting it. Mm. And you mm. just got to scratch your head and mm. think, when's the last time you saw a bushfire running down the Kunana Freeway? Yeah. But all yeah. of these things add up, don't they, Stuart, at the end of the day? Yeah. And, and you are a perfect person to speak to about this because whether you've chosen smartly projects that don't have these risks, they do impact your ability to find and develop the next property next year. Absolutely. Just they, they get put into the mix of that due diligence assessment that you need to do. And ultimately, it comes down to value assessment and risk. The real issue is you know, where policies are brought in and someone's already made that investment decision mm. and something comes in which really turns that on its head. That's where people find it difficult. Developer contribution schemes are a classic case. When you make wild changes or you escalate or add in unnecessary costs to a developer contribution scheme halfway through existence of that scheme, that's hard to swallow mm. for people that have already made investment decisions based on the old rules. Where are you looking? We're really bullish on Western Australia, just as a general statement. As a general rule, I think you can be looking everywhere. From our point of view, not necessarily always wanting to operate in the same corridor. We, we want to be a, a company which has got land across all corridors of, of Perth, a, a one-stop shop, if you like, for land. We're really looking everywhere, from regional WA in the south, Midwest potentially, Metro, of course, East Wanneroo, North Ellenbrook. Well, that's where um, I was going to move to. Yeah, East Wanneroo seems to be the next frontier, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's... There's supply and there's supply coming in Perth, there's no question about it, but it's a case of time and when it's going to come on and how much is going to change around that supply between now and then in terms of the rules and regulations. So it's just it's just got to weigh it all up, I suppose. But East Wanneroo will obviously be a huge supply area, as will North Ellenbrook 
as will sort of East Baldivis down in the southern areas, Pinjarra, uh, Ravenswood, all these areas uh, are where future supply is coming. Yeah, we're just constantly making a value assessment of what are the best bits of land, proximal to, to, to services, avoid some of these issues we've talked about this morning and and then develop those relationships with the local governments and the, the owners of that land to try and make it happen at the end of the day. But yeah, it's a multifaceted industry, that's, that's for sure. And that's probably how I want to leave this conversation is for everyone listening today to recognise that the developer, whether in land or apartments, townhouses, we need to start looking at this, as these people as real people who perform services for society in the same way a teacher does, the postman, the butcher. All these people are providing a service that is very much a basic need. In this yeah. case, it's shelter. It's, it's provision of, of, of housing without supporting developers to do their job as efficiently and quickly and easily as possible. It's just going to make it harder for that next person to buy that next piece of land and all of the costs of living for all of us in this state go up. Do you agree with that sentiment? Appreciate that sentiment. I watched the Australia Alone last night uh, where they've got to go out and survive in the bush for however long they can to win a quarter of a million dollars. And I watched the first episode last night. The first thing they all did was put up a tent mm. shelter. So it's it's pretty fundamental. And the, that costs them the cost of a tarp. That's the, the, the one end of the cost equation for shelter. And it's a question of how many different layers of cost we put on put on that tarp during the, the process. And you know, people ultimately, we just need to engage with the market to make sure we make good decisions. Stuart Reside, GM of Urban Quarter developer of some of the most notable land estates in Western Australia these days. Thank you very much for coming in and adding to the conversation. It's a pleasure, Trent. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!